0: So we've been going through the book of John and through John 7, and as Kyle noted a little while ago, it's a, it's a tough chapter. There's a lot of debates and arguments, but here, something happens for the first time that doesn't happen in John up until this point. Jesus yells. Now Jesus has said a lot of important, truly important things through this chapter. This is the first time he yells in the book of John. It says he cries out in verse 37. It only happens two other times in the book of John. The second time it happens is when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. And Jesus stands in front of the tomb and he cries out, Lazarus, come out! The third time that it happens is in John 12. Another unbelieving crowd is in front of Jesus. And right before he's about to go to the Last Supper and be betrayed and crucified, he cries out before them, All these things, John 7, John 11, and John 12, have one thing in common. Jesus cries out. And whenever he cries out in John, he always does it to people who are physically or spiritually dead. In John 7, it was the unbelieving crowd. With Lazarus, he was a dead man. And with John 12, it was the unbelievers again. He cries out to dead people to bring them to life. And so he cries out. To these people, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It was the last day of the feast. Everyone was going home. It was the last chance for Jesus to preach like this to dying people before they left. When Jesus yells, listen harder. Listen especially if today you sit here hearing Jesus' words and in some way or another you feel death right here. You feel death right in that chest cavity. Jesus is speaking to you. Now it's one thing to hear the words that Jesus cried out It's another thing to understand them. There are actually three speakers in the text we just heard. We're going to look at all of them one by one. First, it's the words of Jesus. Second, the words of John. And third, the words of the crowds. The words of Jesus, the words of John, the words of the crowds. And we're going to learn why Jesus cried out. That's the question. So first, those words of Jesus. If anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now when we first hear that, that might sound nice. Well, that's sweet. Who doesn't like a good river? And out of my heart, I like the word heart too. I'm thirsty sometimes. I want to drink. We relate to it in some way. But we're in danger if we do that of making it abstractly spiritual. As if Jesus is just speaking broadly. Like, whoever comes to me will continue to dance forever. None of us would really know what that means, but we'd know we like it. Jesus isn't doing that. He's actually doing something very, very specific and pretty offensive. You see, if you look back at verse 37, you'll see when and where he says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day. Now the feast in John 7 is called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. It was essentially a week-long festival where people would go and live in tents. They would live inside these canvas tents for a few reasons. The first one is to remember the Exodus. There's a book in the Bible called the Exodus where God's people are rescued from slavery in Egypt and they wander through the desert in tents. And God provides for them continually food and water. So that's the first purpose of the festival. The second purpose is to thank God for the past year of provision. Thank God for the rain and for the food. And the final purpose was to pray that it would happen again. They need rain for another year. And so what they would do is there would be a a ceremony where each day in in the festival, the priest would, would dip would dip into the water. It's called the Pool of Siloam. And he would bring it to the altar and throw it on the altar where they were going to burn an offering. On the first day, they do it once. Second day, they do it twice. Third day, three times. And now, the seventh day, the last day, the great day, symbolizing completion, they do this ritual seven times. Seven times to pray that God would provide rain for them. And it's in that context, in that ceremony, surely in the temple that Jesus, to a people who are thirsty and praying for rain, says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He's turned the tables on them. He's saying the person you're praying to is right here. The person you're asking water for is offering you water. But he's doing more than that, because remember, it's not only a festival to pray for rain, festival to remember rain not just the past year but the entire history of israel because rain and thirst is everywhere if you look through the bible you'll see constantly there's these themes of of rain and it's it, the reason for it is that if you were a desert dwelling people like the israelites were thirst would be a constant feeling now some of us have experienced Thirst. Likely you can think of one or two times, maybe three if you're adventurous, where you were especially thirsty. You remember how it feels in your throat, what it does to your mind. It's a feeling though. For these people, through their history, it was a character attribute, it was a constant theme of their life. They would always be praying for water, they would always be hoping for water. A lot of their idols were dedicated to water. They needed water. It was life or death. They needed the sky to pour down rain. Think about how that would change your relationship with the world. You and I can look up and see the clouds now and think that's beautiful. And in Santa Barbara, we don't want to see any. But it would change how they looked at the sky even. They would look up and hope to see clouds so they could live. And when they were doing that, they'd probably kneel down and pray that rain would come because they're gonna die if it doesn't. It changes the way they think. Everything is about water. For instance, if you, were to, if you were to be able to go through an ancient city or an ancient town, and it was all perfectly intact, you would see artifacts that all give evidence to their thirst. Ways to collect water, like giant jugs, we don't have those. Irrigation systems to save water. Idols and statues they'd pray to for rain. All of it would point you to the fact that they are thirsty for water. It was a constant reminder for them that they needed water and they didn't have it. Nobody in that day could ever think the world is as it should be because they felt it right here. They were always thirsty, always thirsty, and they built their world and their thought around it. And it's why it's so profound that Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, it's almost obvious everyone's thirsty. Everyone's thirsty. But we're not off the hook here. See, we might not have thirst as a character attribute, physical thirst. But the thing you might do in that ancient town, walking around and seeing artifacts, if you want, you can do that after church on State Street. I mean, all sorts of artifacts that point to how we thirst. That's what cultures do. Everything you see will point you to a need or a desire. For instance, I was walking through a mall in the Bay Area a while ago, and I walked by the Nike store. I didn't walk in it, none of you assumed that, but I thought I'd make it clear. (laughs) And outside the store was a sign that said, you don't hate running, you just have the wrong shoes. Now think about that, because it's genius marketing. That sign is not for people who would go into the Nike store. That's not for athletes, they don't hate running. It's for the rest of us, who won't go into the Nike store. That's to us. We all hate running, I mean, we don't, some of you actually like it, I don't understand, but it was to me, and it was saying, you don't actually hate running, it's not your fault, you just have the wrong kind of shoes, because they knew something. The only thing I hate more than running is the fact that I hate running. I wish I liked running, of course I do, you know how much easier it would be to have fun, to get exercise, I wish I liked running, and if you're like me, I know you do too. And what they were saying is the only thing between you and satisfaction is this Nike shoe. All you need to do is buy this and then you'll have it. What it's doing is saying, we know you're thirsty. You're thirsty for the feeling of of freedom, of capability. You're thirsty for feeling like you can exercise whenever you want, explore and move at the pace you want. You're thirsty for freedom And here at this well, the Nike store in San Ramon, California, we can give you that freedom. We can give you water. You can do it all over the place. And the marketing strategies are the same. How do you think beauty stores sell so much? Well, they have to start by convincing you that you're ugly. Think if you were to change it. You're not ugly. You just have the wrong makeup. Doesn't sound too far off. Think of of gyms. You're not out of shape. You just have the wrong routine. Think of universities. You're not dumb. You just haven't read the right books. And we, we know the right books. And so it's no wonder that we have these thirsts that we don't pay attention to. But if you look around, you'll see them everywhere. Everything you look at, ask the question, what, what is this telling me I'm thirsty for? But ask yourself, what, what are you thirsty for? You feel it? In the same way we feel thirsty for water, what are you thirsty for? You know it, it's right there in your head. And you also know everything you've done to get it. Is it love? Attention? The feeling of being important? And then we search for it relentlessly. And we find that every spring we want to go to in this world is either empty or poisoned. There's either nothing there or we try it and then we find it's killing us. In 1961, one of the most ambitious projects mankind has ever exhibited for the sake of thirst was that to go into space. It was by Russia, a man named Yuri Gagarin. He he was the first man in space. And when he came back, he gave words to the feeling we all know when we aren't satisfied no matter how much we've looked. The first man in space came back and he said, I looked and i looked but i didn't see god how many times have you said that i've dated and i've dated but i, I never feel loved i've bought clothes and makeup but i never feel beautiful i've studied and i've studied but i always feel dumb i've worked and i've worked but i don't feel important i've loved and i've loved but i never feel loved i've given and i've given but i never feel respected I've cried and I've cried but I always have more sadness. I've entertained and I've entertained but I always feel bored. I've looked and I've looked but I didn't see God. We are a thirsty people. Look around at our culture's artifacts and you'll see it. You are a thirsty person. It might not be for water but everyone is thirsty. And so... To the crowds in John 7 and to us, Jesus stands and yells, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It's a totally different way of understanding Christianity than most of us are used to, you know. You see, one, it's probably a bad thing that I do, but I'll share it with you. When I just became a Christian... I don't know if I looked Christian. I don't know if there's a way to look Christian, but I'm gonna guess that I didn't because I went to San Francisco State and what would happen often is people would come up to me and say, do you ever feel like something's missing from your life? And I'd go, "Uh, yeah, I knew what they were doing. And they'd go, well, I wanna tell you about Jesus Christ. And I would just, I'd let them do it for a little while. And then eventually I'd say like, oh, I actually am a Christian because I wanted to listen to how they would present it. And there's something in common that happens all the time. They tell you the needs you don't know you have. Well, you might not know this, but you're a sinner. And you might not know this, but there's a God who judges sin. And then you might not know this, but Jesus forgives our sin by dying on the cross. And you might not know this, but he's here now. And you might not know this, but if you're with Jesus, you go to heaven. That's one way to present the gospel. It's not wrong. But what Jesus is doing here, if anyone thirsts to you and to me, he's not telling you about satisfying the needs you don't know you have. He's saying, I will satisfy the needs you know you have, that you feel all the time. Are you lonely? Doesn't matter if you're Christian or not, everyone feels lonely from time to time. It might be a feeling or it might be like thirst for Israel, a character attribute. It never leaves. Are you depressed? Do you feel trapped by life? Are you thirsty for freedom? For some true and genuine joy, adventure? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What Jesus is saying is that whatever your thirst is, he is the source of satisfaction. And then he says something strange. He says, whoever believes in me, There's two steps he introduces. There's coming and then there's believing. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's also confusing, but but there's a better word there for heart. You see, the Greek word for heart is one you know. It's cardi,a as in cardio. But that's not the word that John wrote down here. He uses the word koilia or Gut. Empty cavity in here. You see, I'll do anything to avoid cardio. Just a side note. I'm glad I was understood there. See, he says gut. Out of his gut will flow rivers of living water. I think that's more beautiful. It doesn't sound more beautiful, but it is. Because that empty cavity, we all have it. And we do two things with it. The first thing we do is we feel it. So we have all our feelings. If you want to, put your hand right here right now. What does it feel? Some of you are hungry and you're wondering, when is this guy going to stop? <laughs> Some of you, maybe you've touched a nerve and there's a sense of dread or anxiety. You know that's where you feel it. It's where the butterflies live. Maybe there's a sense of emptiness. and Not food emptiness, but real emptiness. It's where the hunger calls. We feel our guts and we feed our guts. It's the call and response of life. What I feel here, I feed here, or here, or here. If I feel anxious, I need to feed with something. If I feel hungry, I need food. If I, need, if I feel thirsty, I need drink. It's a constant sink. We're always feeding and feeling and feeding and feeling, and what Jesus says is profound, because he says, out, out, of his gut will flow rivers of living water. Don't think too much about it. I know it can sound gross if you're, you know, child's sense of humor, but think of the beauty of that poetically. And literally, what he's saying is the gut is no longer a sink. It's a source. It's not a sink, it's a source. Now that can be really confusing. Because how do we live a life where the gut is not Calling the shots, feeling and feeding. How does Jesus transform our lives so that it's, it's not a sink but a source? How does the dynamic get reversed? What's well, what John explains? 37 and 38, those are the words of Jesus. Look now with me at verse 39. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now let me sort of draw a line between where we are. I want to connect those dots between how does Jesus put in us a wellspring of living water. So hold that in your head because I have to explain what John's saying here and what he's doing. John does this a lot. He has these little interludes. Will he interrupt the narrative of the passage and insert sort of a, a, a narrator, narrative commentary. It's like when you're watching a movie and somebody says something, but they're not on the screen. They're just explaining the situation. And what he says is that Jesus is talking here about the Holy Spirit who has not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now bear with me because there's two concepts in theology that help us understand this. The first one we're all pretty familiar with, I'm guessing, at least if you come to church. It's called redemption accomplished. We think of redemption accomplished, what we're thinking about is what is the work done for redemption? Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. There's a redemption accomplished. Now corresponding to the redemption accomplished is something called redemption applied. Doesn't mean they're separate. It just means there's a distinction. It helps us understand how we're saved. See, Jesus died on the cross, but how does he give that to us? What John is saying, when he says Jesus had not yet been glorified, he's saying that once Jesus is glorified, as in dies, rises, and ascends, then the Spirit is given to those who believe. There's the redemption accomplished, the redemption applied. The reason that that is important is because this is exactly what you see when the Spirit is given. In the book of Acts, there's something called Pentecost, where people are sitting down and gathering for prayer, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and you know what happens next? Peter goes out and preaches a sermon. 3,000 people come to Christ. Out of his gut flowed life. No longer is it a sink. No longer is the dynamic of life feeding ourselves. It is being satisfied and preaching satisfaction to others. It's a beautiful thing. And it's why it's going to be so confusing for so many of us to start to understand how this actually works because there is no how. Here's what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. When he sends the Holy Spirit... But when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now people ask me a lot, what's the role of the Holy Spirit? And my cheeky answer is I like to say God. End of story. Holy Spirit is God. But we're talking about how the Spirit works in our redemption, bearing witness to Christ all the time. See, Christianity, and the way it satisfies us, is different than the way State Street does. State Street, Instagram, all of that offers you process. And processes, well, at some point they become useless. Follow step one, step two, step three, you're satisfied, process goes away. Christianity is not a process by which I say, come to Jesus, pray three times, read the Bible, or at least a little bit of it, come to church eight times, and then boom, you're satisfied. It's because the way Christ satisfies us is not by a process, but by a person. It's far different. And it's why when John says, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, those that's the river of living water. He's talking about the Spirit who bears witness to Jesus. What this means is that you won't come to Christianity and find inside of it a cure for anxiety. You won't find a process by which you are carried out of it. What you will find... Or better yet, who will find you is Jesus, who will be with you through every panic attack, every moment of despair and fear. What you will find is not a a shortcut to freedom, but you'll find that in your moments of deepest captivity, whether it's work hours or depression, whatever it is, that Jesus is there, saying, you are free in me. In your moments of despair, in emptiness, It's not that Jesus hands you a process by which you follow and leave it. What he's saying is, I've given you the Spirit who will constantly point you at me. And I am not leaving. I am not leaving. And out of you, not just in you, but out of you, flow those rivers of living water. Do you know someone who knows the need they have with no idea where to have it satisfied? And have you thought about showing them Jesus? Are you lonely? I know a place where not only you will find the person who will bear with you through it all, but the gift of God that will make you a beacon of friendship to other people. It's beautiful, it's wonderful. There's nothing like this. The world gives us empty answers and Jesus says, I will remain with you. But then the words of the crowds come. Look at verses 40 to 44 with me. This is what happens after Jesus says this. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. We've seen this a lot in John 7. There's always confusion. We might be tempted here to count some of it as gain. At least some said he was the Christ, some said he was the prophet, But what John's conveying with this section here is not partial acceptance. He's conveying complete confusion. Nobody agrees on who Jesus is. And in John 7, we've been focusing intently and for good reason on what the people do. But look at what they don't do. None of them come to Jesus. He yells, let them come to me and drink, and none of them do. Think back to the beginning, the dying people, last chance, seventh day, everyone goes home tomorrow, one more shot. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. As the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, and he gets confusion. What a tragic thing to be thirsty and choose confusion and questions over water I'm too young to give anyone good advice but can I give you this don't be confused now because you're thirsty and it's not because I know you well enough about everybody to say that but because everyone is thirsty for something whatever age you are whatever place you are in there is a thirst there And might I cry out one more time and again, if anyone thirsts, yes, you, come to Jesus and drink. And whoever believes in Jesus, out of your heart, out of your gut, will flow rivers of living water. Are you thirsty? And what are you thirsty for? See, Christians, we have a tendency to forget or ignore the fact that Christ gives us satisfaction for every element of our life. We reduce it to Sunday so often. There is the spiritual element that God helps, and then we don't think about our thirst for love and romance. We don't think about our thirst for friendship. We don't think about our thirst for freedom, for joy. We assume that Jesus wants our soul to be well, but the rest of us is our business. And meanwhile, we're thirsty and confused like the crowds are. Can you hear this reminder today? Jesus invited you to come and drink and have life, to have satisfaction for whatever your thirst is. And I, you know, I actually hope I hope for the sake of today that there's somebody here who is, who knows, who knows that they're thirsty and doesn't know that Jesus heals it, doesn't know that Jesus has the water. So I can tell you, perhaps for the first time, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to Jesus and he will quench your thirst. See, this is the beauty of the entire gospel. Whatever your thirst is, come to Jesus. And I'll let my last words be this, the very same as Jesus, crying out. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Jesus and drink. Whoever believes in him, as the scripture has said, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. Do not delay. Come to Jesus and drink. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.